0: Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, editor in chief of Runner's World. This week, a segment about finding love on the run. Listeners and some of our own staffers share their stories of finding or not finding their running soulmates. And then, in the kick, a Boston Marathon bombing survivor will marry the firefighter who helped save her in 2013 and they celebrated their engagement in a very unique way. But first, my interview with obstacle racer and endurance athlete Amelia Boone. Amelia is definitely all about the next big challenge. After winning pretty much everything in the world of obstacle course racing, she took up ultra running and crushed it there too. And by crushed it, I mean beating everyone, men and women. It's all thanks to her seemingly boundless talent and dedication, not to mention a fiercely competitive nature that has driven her since
1: childhood.
2: Yeah, I just—I think I had this way of making anything that I could into a competition, just because that kind of, to me, created purpose or created motivation. I was notoriously awful to play board games with because I refused to lose. Um, and I remember—I remember that everyone's like, "No, no, we're not playing Scrabble with Amelia. Not playing Monopoly."
0: It's a fascinating, fun conversation that I'll admit made me feel like maybe I should be squeezing a bit more out of my own life. Thanks for joining us. Stick around. There are a few things that Amelia Boone is not good at. She's not a great cook, she cannot dance, and she's really bad at sprinting, or so she says but she kicks ass in just about everything else she does. Her first obstacle course race, a Tough mutter, was in 2011. Since then, you only have to look at the names of some of the races she's either won or placed in the top three in over the years to get a sense of just how good and how tough she is. The Winter Death Race, Peak Death Race, The World's Toughest Mutter, The Georgia Death Race. After topping the podium dozens of times in obstacle racing, she turned her focus to ultra-running in 2015 and almost immediately qualified for the Western States 100-mile endurance run. She never got to run Western States, at least not yet, because she ended up with a stress fracture in her femur. When we spoke, she hadn't run in about six months, but she was still getting up at 4 a.m. to train. Swimming, cycling, and doing all the PT— that will get her back out on the mountains she loves. Amelia Boone, thank you so much for joining us on the Runner's World Show. It's really great to have you with us.
2: Thank you for having me. Honored to be here.
0: Okay, so you obviously are a first-rate multitasker and endurance (laughs) athlete, and I know that one of the ways that you train at such a high level while working full time as a corporate attorney is through multitasking and doing lots of different things during the workday, sometimes working out. So I have to ask you as our first question, <laughs> please do not take this the wrong way, but what are you wearing and doing right now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's hilarious. So um, honestly, I right now I'm actually in um, running clothes. Um, I think my... My wardrobe either consists about 95% of running clothes or work clothes. So like business casual. I don't really have any like casual in between. Um, so right now I'm, I'm uh, you know, kind of playing hooky from work a little bit to uh, do this podcast. But I'll be heading in later um, as soon as we're done.
0: I've read that you work as many as eighty hours a week, and perhaps that was when you were in Chicago working at a at a big law firm. Mm-hmm. You're out in San Jose, California now, working for Apple. Is that right?
2: I am. Yes.
0: Is your work life still as demanding as it was in Chicago?
2: You know, it it is in some ways. It isn't in others. Um, I still work just as much, um, but I love it. I think that's the thing: is that it doesn't really like feel necessarily always like work. Um, so it's really engaging to me um, and I work a lot, but I um, it's something that's fascinating to me and it's something that I actually find that I juggle life better when I have multiple balls kind of in the air. Um, so it is, it's still, still definitely a full-time job, um, but they have been super supportive of me and understanding um, when I, you know, need to go travel to races, I work remotely a lot. So people always kind of ask, like, how, how you make it work or how you do that. And I think it helps having an understanding employer. It helps also that you have to realize sometimes it's the night before the race and I'm on my computer finishing stuff up for my, for my other job. <laughs> and uh, that's just kind of the way it is. And um, I've grown accustomed to that.
0: So does all the intense exercise that you do in your training have an effect on your other job, as you put it, in in, in this case, you know, being a corporate lawyer?
2: Um, I mean, I think that what I've realized where um, where potentially things get get a little bit touch and go is that sometimes I don't have the time um, to devote to all of like the recovery and the prehab and the rehab that. Professional athletes Mm -hmm. typically do. Um, And so if I'm training really hard in the mornings, um, and then if I, you know, have a second session in the evenings, those hours during the day where I think a lot of people um, would be sleeping or resting or recovering between those sessions, I'm, you know, at a desk, full bore, working full time. And so I've realized that I I kind of need to rearrange my training some to, to incorporate Um, more of that but in terms of energy levels and things like that if I don't start out with like my morning run or the morning training like I'm worthless during the day like I can't (laughs) it wakes me up it gets me going so
0: yeah so you said that begins around 4 a.m right and sometimes it's a run sometimes it's more of a cross-training workout what's your second workout like and what time does that usually happen is it late at night
2: um, it's generally in the evening hours, probably after six, seven p.m. or so. Around that time, mm-hmm. um, and it, it depends. I have never really had a super regimented training schedule in all of the you know in the in the years that I've been doing this. Um, I try to really kind of listen to my body. Um, that tends to be more strength training. Um, it tends to be more some type of complimentary training, not necessarily like a second run. Um, I think that I've learned that I kind of function better with just one run a day or something like that. So,
0: Okay. And your athletic career really kind of took off unexpectedly when you did your first obstacle course race, Mm -hmm. right? Back when obstacle course racing was a very new thing. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how you did that first one.
2: Yeah. So I was a first year associate at my law firm in Chicago, um, and I had a coworker come up to me and say, hey, have you seen this thing called the Tough Mudder? Like, we should totally do it. Um, and so there were four or five of us that all signed up. Um, and this was back in 2011. This was kind of the first year they really got going with Tough Mudder. And I remember, like, training really hard, trying to be able to, like, do a pull-up because I know I needed upper body strength to be able to do it. Was not able to do a pull-up at the time. Um, Went out and ran the course with my coworkers and just fell in love. And they all were like, cool, got a free beer at the end, check that off the bucket list, like, you know, move on to the next thing. And I was just like, when's the next one? When's the next one? What can I do? Um, And so I actually, from that then ended up signing up for with no rhyme or reason like i had no business in thinking that i could compete in this but the first 24 hour world's toughest mudder in 2011. Um, so the furthest i had ever run in my life was 13 miles 13.1 miles i had done one half marathon yet i somehow decided that i could run for 24 hours and do you know hundreds of obstacles um and so that was kind of the kind of the thing that set everything in motion for me
0: wow that's an incredible jump from your very first (laughs) tough mudder like a local race where you couldn't even do one pull-up and you jumped right to a 24-hour 90-mile world's toughest mutter race that has 300 obstacles is that right
2: well I mean it's it had on each you basically run as many laps as possible in 24 hours of a course and so at that time, I think there were like 40 obstacles on a 10 mile course. So depending on how far you went, that would be, you would be doing those obstacles over and over again. But yeah, that's, that's generally accurate. You're <laughs> the numbers. So.
0: Okay. So as you said, you, you knew that you probably had no business even taking that big a jump, but how did the race go?
2: Um, so (laughs) I ended up getting second in this race, um, in 2011 (laughs) and, um, second for women, there were a thousand people that started and there were 13 finishers. Um, this was in December in New Jersey. And the temperatures dipped into the teens in the night. The water froze over. That's the thing. It's like it's not like you're like running a, a typical running race. You're in and out of the water for 24 hours, um, and so it was just like disaster. People were dropping out like flies. And so I finished this, being like, okay, I was one of 13 people that finished this race thinking was the most miserable I'd ever been in my entire life, yet all I wanted was more.
3: What
0: What is it about that combination of the things that you love about it and also the misery of it that brings you back?
2: Yeah, so I think for me what was really attractive about obstacle course racing was that every single race was different. Um, I had never really considered myself a runner. Um, I don't have that much of an athletic background aside from like team sports growing up. Um, But I, you know, I didn't run cross country. I didn't run track. um, I didn't really, even at this time, I didn't know what a tempo run was. I didn't know, like, I didn't know anything. I didn't have a Garmin or GPS watch. Um, So what appealed to me about obstacle course racing was that you would run, but then it was broken up by some, you know, weird task that you had to do, some monkey bars, some rope climbs, something that was like this combination of strength but then also endurance and so for me it was just everything was new at all all times and no two courses were similar so I think that's what really attracted me to it in the first place Um, and then when I got to World's Toughest Mudder and just the the pain that you kind of go through and the suffering and how cold you are and how miserable you are what it did in a weird way was it almost made me feel alive and it made you feel like at the end of it like you're getting through this and you're one of the very few people that's doing that and that's pretty rad and that's to me it's just I was it was this sense of accomplishment and this sense of just being out there and feeling and being so tired and so physically beat down in every single way like I couldn't put on shoes for the next three weeks after it but It was this feeling... Because your
0: blisters were so bad? Oh, yeah.
2: The blisters... I mean, I didn't know how to wear shoe. I didn't know how to wear running shoes for 24 hours. (laughs) Like, I didn't know anything. They were sized all wrong. I didn't account for foot swelling, things like that. Things that now, you know, six years later, I kind of... I understand and I get. Um, But it was just this new challenge and this kind of new awakening in me.
0: Was there something about your life before this that didn't make you feel alive was, was it you know feeling like sort of a, you know an an office um zombie or w- what was it about your life before you turned to being an athlete that that just wasn't enough
2: yeah yeah people are like what happened to you in your childhood that this you needed this um, well, i was going
0: to ask you that later but we can do this one there first there we go
2: <laughs> yeah i mean i had done um I had done the very typical progression in life, in that I um, graduated high school, did really well in school, got into a great college, um, worked really hard in college, did very well there, and went to law school. You know, graduated the top of my class in law school, went to you know one of the best law firms in the world, and I and I got there, and I was like, this is cool, and I like being an attorney, but okay, what's what's next? it was kind of like i had done that entire progression of through like the schooling and then all of a sudden i faced life as like a 27 28 year old at the time looking into this expanse and being like i need something else to work for as well um and i just to me it it kind of the athletics then reemerged so
0: it sounds like it wasn't that the things you achieved were unsatisfying it's just that you continue to want to chase new challenges is that right right?
2: yeah completely
0: and okay so now to your childhood since you brought it up (laughs) (laughs) i've read that you were insanely competitive you mentioned earlier that you did play some team sports even though you weren't classically a runner you didn't run cross country or track or anything like that what what are some examples of of how competitive you were as a kid
2: yeah, I think I had this way of making anything that I could into a competition, just because that was, to me, created purpose or created motivation. Um, I was notoriously awful to play board games with because I refused to lose. Um, and I remember, I remember that everyone's like, "No, no, we're not playing Scrabble with Amelia. Not playing Monopoly." Um, and so,
0: what would happen if if you lose? Would would you like? do that classic thing and like toss the board across the room so no one else could win
2: (laughs) no 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 I just I always wanted to um if I lost I would want to rematch I'd want to redeem myself you know and I would want to get better um and I think um you know with team sports it was I was definitely very competitive but team sports are different because it's not it's not always on you you know, like I was very hard on myself when things, when things didn't, didn't go well. I was a pitcher in softball, and so I took a lot of the onus and things like that when games didn't go well for us. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just always been this competitive nature in me, um, and I think a lot of that actually found its way out through academics when I was younger, um, and I was very, very good at school. Um, and so then I didn't have school anymore. So I'm like, well, now what can I be good at?
0: (laughs) What's the lowest grade you got when you were in school?
2: Um,
0: I'm picturing a minus.
2: So I got my first B ever in law school and I think I thought the world was ending. Um, and then (laughs) two days later I realized that it really wasn't that bad. Um, and life goes on, um, and, and I know as some people are like rolling their eyes right now. They're like, oh man, <laughs> she's one of those. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I didn't have a lot of like failure at all, um, in, in schooling. Um, and so it's one of those lessons that you, you start to learn and I, you know, and I've learned in the failure and stuff like that through racing as well. So.
0: So what have you learned about failure?
2: Um, it totally sucks in the moment, but it's absolutely necessary, and you never grow as a person until you experience that. Injury, I don't necessarily see as failure, um, though you can, mm-hmm. everyone, when they're injured, you go through that, I like to call it the merry-go-round of self-flagellation and um, about what I could have done differently. but. At the same time, you feel very humbled and stripped down and things are taken away from you. But that's really kind of when you have to like recenter yourself and you learn and you grow from that. And when everyone told me when I went you know, down with a stress fracture and I was preparing for Western States and I was so excited and everything was just like the rug was pulled out from underneath me. And everyone turned to me and was like, you'll come back stronger or, you know, like there's a silver lining in this. And I really just wanted to slap them across the face because I was like, no, there isn't. But now, you know, six, seven months removed, like I see that. um, And I see that it's necessary to have those ebbs and flows as an athlete and in life.
0: So early in your athletic career, Mm -hmm. you said, and you just said in this conversation that you never really were a runner. You had one half marathon in your past Mm -hmm. but now you are saying that you sort of are becoming more of a runner and in fact you've evolved from being an obstacle course athlete alone and started doing ultra marathons you've done a Mm -hmm. couple of long ultras a 50k and a 100k why the transition and and how do you feel about running and being a runner these days
2: yeah so I realized as I was going through with obstacle course racing um, that the things, the courses that I loved the most were ones that were up and down mountains. And my favorite part of those courses, and actually where I was the strongest um, and where I would really um, separate myself from the field to win the races, was running, particularly up those mountains. Um, and that's what I just enjoyed the most. So I thought, I'm like, why don't I just give a race a go that's just running and that's just running up and down mountains. So I picked for my first ultra, I picked like the gnarliest kind of up and down terrain I could do. It was called the Georgia Death Race of 68 miles and 40,000 feet of elevation change. I just, I wanted to give it a go and see if I actually really liked it. And and of course, it goes in the kind of the realm of seeking new challenges for me because I've done really I've done really well in obstacle racing. You know, I've been at the, at the top and I've I've won you know all the championships um, out there. And so it's kind of like, all right, I love this, but what's next? Um, so that's how I kind of transitioned to the ultra stuff and got my feet wet.
0: And what what did you do after the the death race? You've done a couple of other ultra marathons, right? And I'm I'm sort of goading you again, because I love the way that you, it with great humility kind of lead into saying, well, yeah, I won.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I think what was big for me was also moving. I moved from Chicago to California um, this past year and where Chicago, you know, it's a great running city, but you pretty much have the lakefront path and that's about it and it's flat. Um, So, here now I have trails 10 minutes away from my door, and I can go before work, et cetera. And it's fantastic. So, I ran some, you know, a couple local trail races. And um, this past winter, uh, I decided to uh, give it a go for a golden ticket race to run my way basically into Western states, which, you know, is like the creme de la creme of hundred mile races. And so yep. I ran Sean O'Brien, um, hundred K last February and ended up taking second there. Um, and so the top two women got automatic births into Western States. So uh, my entire year last year, I kind of shifted focus to really prepare, uh, for that. And so that was, you know, kind of a cool, <laughs> a cool thing to cool entry into the ultra marathon world.
0: Right. And and before you did Sean O'Brien, you ran a 50K and you won that outright and set a course oh. record, correct? <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. So, you left that
0: out.
2: Oh, okay. OK. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, <laughs> when I beat all the boys as well as the women. Yeah.
0: <laughs> ah, OK. So that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Are you aware of that when you're out there? Because there are other races and obstacle course races, I think, when you have won outright as well. Do you think about that when, you, when you're when you out there, that you're competing with the entire field and not just other women?
2: I actually do. Um, I didn't at first, but this has been kind of a progression and evolution in, in my athletic career. In like two or three years ago, I realized that I was placing top 10 overall in obstacle races. And so I no longer was like, that's cool if I beat all the women, but what I really wanna do is also beat as many men as possible. Um, and so, for instance, in 2012 at World's Toughest Mutter, which was um, the first World's Toughest Mudder that I won, I ended up winning for females, but I took second overall. And so, and I was only nine minutes behind the male winner. And so this was 24 hours. And um, I didn't realize how important that was at the time. I was like, big deal. Like, people were yelling at me, like keep going. He's only nine minutes ahead. You can catch him. Cause like to have a female winner of a 24 hour race was going to be monumental if they could get me to move. And I'm like, I'm tired. I can't move any faster. <laughs> um, but I look back on that now. And I think that's when I kind of flipped the switch that I was like, I don't, yes, I wanted to go out there and I always want to compete with myself. Um, and I wouldn't compete with the other women, but I want to compete with the entire field and see what I can do.
0: Typically, how do men react when you beat them?
2: <laughs> you know, at first, there <laughs> were a lot of kind of nasty words that were thrown my way when I would like pass people on a course. Um, now really? it's, well, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think a lot of men don't like this this notion of, of being chicked is the word that I guess has kind right. of come into common uh, usage. But... Now, actually, like most guys, I think there's been a shift over these past five years or so that I've noticed most guys just instead like cheering you on, being like, go get them. Um, yeah. So to me, it's encouraging for sure.
0: Are women tougher than men in general?
2: <laughs> you could say that. Um, I think definitely, <laughs> I think women have this this ability to kind of withstand the mental pain maybe more, and that's a gross generalization, overgeneralization, but... You know, based on my experience and what I've seen um, in long races like this, women hold it together very, very well.
0: What were some of the things that you used to hear in the early days when you would, you know, quote, chick somebody?
2: (laughs) Many, which I probably should not repeat on a podcast. Um, But no, I think it was just like, oh, I can't believe this woman's beating me and blah, 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 blah. And the way that we do it in... In obstacle races, at least it's in Spartan races, is that the men's pro heat goes off first, and then the women's heat starts 15 minutes later. So, as a, as the female front runner, you're going to end up passing a lot of guys who are kind of the back of the packers in the pro heat. Um, so they have a 15 minute head start, and if I'm starting to catch up with them by like mile two or three in. Um, it can be, I think, kind of, uh, humiliating for them. So I get it. But at at the same time, like, I'm like, maybe it provides you extra motivation to go faster. Uh, so I think early on it was a lot of like, "Ah, I can't believe this is happening and blah, 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 or like, um, and now it's just like, man, what took you so long to get up here, Amelia? You know? So they, they know they, they're always like, oh, I was wondering when you're going to catch up with me. So, yeah.
0: Well, that's probably part of it too. They're they're getting used to you and other women yeah. excelling and and passing them. It, it's it's become normal.
2: Yeah, yeah, I which think, is great. Yeah, I th- I think you know I'm I'm all for it. Uh, I, I think that I hopefully I wish that we all started together so there wasn't that issue. Um, yeah, but maybe right. you know one day be able to do that. Um, so.
0: So these long events—twenty-four-hour obstacle course races, hundred-k mm-hmm. ultra marathons—that's a lot of time, and it's a lot of mental time. What goes on in your head when you're doing these things?
2: Yeah, I—I um, I have to say, a lot of times my mind is just blank. <laughs> um, I think, but really, I, I mean, it, it depends. I—I go back and forth. I think. Um, one of the main things that I do during very long races is I actually sing to myself. The first time I ever did that was in 2012, World's Toughest mutter, And I did that mainly um, to make sure that I was cognitively still with it. Uh, I'll never forget. Hmm. It was actually um, right after Macklemore's Thrift Shop was released in 2012. And I sang the entire song on repeat. Oh.
1: Some tags, only got
2: $20 in my pocket. like kind of out loud to myself as I was going through it was like 1 a.m 2 a.m 3 a.m to make sure that I was still mentally coherent because it's hard like you know I was getting hypothermic I was it was all of those things so it was, to me it was a, like a mental check um and I tend to do that during these long races is that I stick a song on repeat if I not during obstacle races because you can't run with music because you're in water and whatnot, but for hundred K's, things like that, the first part of the race, I'll generally be without music and I'll be chatting with other competitors, things like that. Um, but when I get by myself and alone, it's generally a song on repeat and that's almost a form of meditation, um, to me. Yeah. So, and that's kind of how I get through it. Yeah.
0: So is running as fulfilling for you as, obstacle course racing was early in your career. You said earlier that what drew you to it or one of the things that you loved about it was the versatility that it required. Is running still hitting you in that way that you used to feel about obstacle course racing?
2: Yeah, I think, and and I'll be clear, like I still absolutely adore obstacle racing more than anything. I think I love running for several reasons. Um, mainly I realize now I really like to see pretty things and trail running. Mm. When you're out there like on top of a mountain and the vistas and the sun is rising, like that is like the most at peace that I am at or that I can be. Um, And for me, I think what I really get from all this is really also just the mastery of a new skill. So when I have a new challenge in front of me, And that, you know, five, six years ago was obstacle course racing. I throw myself into it and I figure out how can I be the best at this? What are the tricks in it? Um, So when I entered an marathon, and, you know, like I reached out to the community, there's obviously a fantastic running community in the Bay Area. Um, I did all the reading that I could. I tried to immerse myself in this. And it's it's a challenge to me to try and learn this skill and to learn how to like the – how you prepare for races and to make those mistakes and to fall on your face, literally sometimes (laughs) when you trip on the trails. Um, and so that to me is what, what keeps, what keeps pulling me back into it. And I'm, I'm still not there, you know, and I'm still working on it. So.
0: Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. It's great to be at the bottom of a learning curve and Mm -hmm. just go through the experience of moving your way up that learning curve, what that, means of course is that you make all kinds of mistakes oh yeah and and you do stuff that in retrospect may seem hilariously clueless Mm -hmm. what are what are some examples of that things that you did wrong unwittingly when you were making your way up the learning curve
2: yeah I definitely I did not understand how to fuel for an ultra marathon I came into it um with experience in 24-hour obstacle races where I'd always eaten solid food and I had been fine with it. Um, and so I considered that when I ran the Georgia Death Race that the same thing would apply, that I could fuel like I fueled for a stuff as matter and I'd be golden. What I did not account for is that you're moving much slower in an obstacle race because you're also crawling and climbing and jumping and it's not as much jostling. Um, so I spent probably about 10, 15 miles of the Georgia Death Race puking every 400 yards um, because I put solid food in my stomach like 20 miles in, and it was, it was not pretty. Um, so definitely do not eat the um, you know cheese sandwiches, the grilled cheese sandwiches um, at the aid stations, no matter how fantastic they look at the time. So for me, it's it's been a definitely a, a constant learning with like fueling and what sits on my stomach. Um, and so that's been a big one. Same thing with shoes. I fail to account um, you know, for swelling of feet and for things like that, that you don't really uh, take into account in, in shorter contexts, so.
0: You must burn so many calories when you're in your training phase. How mm-hmm. many? How many calories do you aim to take in on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, you know, I've never really been a calorie counter, um, but I mainly try and focus on getting enough high quality fats in my diet um and things like that. I, I can tell when I'm underfueled and um and you know, when I actually have enough stores to go off of. So, but yeah, I mean, I would probably estimate I'm in the realm of like 4,000 calories a day when I'm in when I'm in like heavy training mode, um, and no jar of peanut butter is safe around me. So, or or <laughs> pint of ice cream. <laughs> but
0: well, yeah, I was I was gonna ask, do you have a favorite go-to reward food after a race or after a heavy workout?
2: Um. Mainly ice cream. Um, so I actually have this weird thing that I think other people experience that after after long races, so like after Sean O'Brien, for instance, the thought of solid food for the next two days actually made me nauseous, it, which is hard because you're starving, but you're also your body's kind of in revolt. Um, and the only thing that appeals to me is ice cream. Um, so I, like other people like, let's go out for burgers. And I like sat there and like took a bite of the burger and I was like, I can't even do this. Um, so to me, it's all forms of Ben and Jerry's and, um, that kind of good stuff until it takes a few days for my stomach to kind of right the ship. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm starving and eating everything in sight.
0: So what do you do in your downtime, Amelia, assuming that you can find any downtime? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah um i man as you can tell i'm probably i'm notoriously bad at downtime um but i do love a few things i'm a huge huge football fan i'm a huge seattle seahawks fan so Sundays in the fall are, like, sacred to me. And um, I also really, really love professional wrestling. So I <laughs> have <laughs> Monday nights, um, Monday Night Raw, all types of – in a different life, I would have been a professional wrestler. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's just great. It's like a soap opera with really, really skilled athletes, and it's fantastic. So those are my my go-to um, – things that I that I love when I'm just like laying on the couch which isn't very often and I don't have a couch so I can't really lay on it but
0: (laughs) is that intentional
2: you know it's not intentional um I keep telling myself that I'm gonna be a big girl and get a couch since I've lived here for a year now and I don't have one but it's primarily I have foam rollers so if I'm watching tv (laughs) I'm on a foam roller um I think it's like a good motivation for me <laughs> to do yeah, that
0: work yeah I, I love the image of you having friends over to your house and saying come on make yourself comfortable pull up a foam roller
2: that's Let's pretty watch mu- some football <laughs> it's pretty pretty much what happens <laughs>
0: uh. so by and large you've been sort of self-coached but I'm, I'm sure you've gotten lots of advice from other athletes and and maybe some coaches that you have talked to over the mm-hmm. years. What what's some of the best advice that you've gotten?
2: Yeah, I actually so I do actually have a running coach. Um I, I picked one up last um last winter when I started training for Western States. Oh you did? Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. No, no, Who's no, that? no. Uh, David Roche, he's out of here in the Bay Area. Um, and he, he's also an attorney. So he also understands um, the work life balance thing. Um yeah, by and large for especially for obstacle racing, because training is so kind of all over the place and made up because you're like carrying buckets and (laughs) up mountains full of rocks and things like that. Um, It's kind of self-taught. But really what I've learned is that, and I don't think enough people realize this, um, though it's more and more people are, is that you really, your easy workouts really, really need to be easy. (laughs) And, uh, I feel like we have this culture now where every workout needs to be beast mode. And you see stuff on social media about the craziness that people are doing and realizing that, you know, that shouldn't be every day. That should be like once, twice a week. And that really to stay injury free, to stay healthy, there need to be very, very easy days. And that recovery is almost more important than the actual training itself. Um, and for me, I've also, one of the, the the things that has kept me sane is to really take myself off the grid so I'm not comparing. Um, so for instance, I know runners love it, but I don't have a Strava account. I'm not on Strava. Because I know mm-hmm. for me, with my competitive nature, I would be out there trying to recapture every PR course segment, king of the hill, whatever things they give, um, and it would just become a bad cycle for me. So I think every runner needs to realize that they have a different set point in terms of mileage per week, in terms of how much training their body can handle, and to really stop the comparison. Because I have a great friend, she can handle 120, 130 miles a week. Um, and be injury free. And I, I personally don't think I can ever get to that and stay healthy. So, and that's, I think just accepting that and realizing that that's okay and different things work for different people, um, is one of the greatest lessons that I've learned.
0: What's the max mileage that you have reached in a week?
2: Um, so I, hit, uh, about a hundred when I was training for Western States. And then shortly after my hundred mile a week was when I came down with my stress fracture. So, uh, you know, I, there, I could go into all the reasons and the, the self-flagellation and behind all of that and, and how I, and I, how I got to that. But I think that, um, you know, that was a bit much for me. And so I think, you know, as I'm starting to progress and realizing like, I'm, will sit probably below that. Um, yeah, no triple digits in my future.
0: <laughs> well, in closing, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, Amelia Boone, for any <laughs> any tips. What What do you wish someone had told you before you did your first obstacle course race and, and also told you what not to do?
2: Yeah. Um, the main thing I think with obstacle course racing is grip strength is of utmost importance. It doesn't need to be fancy what you do, but pull-ups, push-ups, like the basic strength, and then building grip strength in terms of farmer's carries, in terms of just hanging from bars, things like that, um, is very helpful. I always tell people before they go into the first one, like, have no expectations and realize that you're really probably going to fall on your face and not do very well. Um, And that's normal. And we've had a lot of really strong runners come over and run an obstacle race and absolutely just not do well and then they get frustrated and they're like well i don't want to do this and then they go back to running it's a steep learning curve and once those runners master it oh god they're like forces to be reckoned with so (laughs) i always tell people i'm like don't just try it once like because the first one probably isn't going to go so well because everything's new and it's different um you know so give it a few times and then you'd be surprised how quickly you can catch on
0: Have you ever gone on a running date? If you're single and you're a runner, it's actually not a bad way to get to know someone, provided you do it right, of course. Just in time for Valentine's Day, producer Claire Trageser brings us the story of several on-the-run hookups, including her own.
5: Do you remember what you wore? No. I don't remember what you wore. Do you remember what I wore? No, No, of course
6: not. (laughs) (laughs) This is me talking to my husband, Seth, about our first running date over five years ago. We were both runners when we met and had been part of the same running group before we started dating. Our first official date was dinner and a movie, but a few days after that, Seth asked me out on a run. I think I remember being kind of nervous about it or something, even though we'd gone running before this was more of a date so you want to look good and not look stupid but look stupid I did Seth took us on a seven mile trail run with a few steep climbs I was telling you the story and we started going up a really steep hill and I tried to continue to tell you the story even though I couldn't breathe at all and then i had to stop and walk
5: the only part of that run that i remember is the end the end was in sight so i said that we should let out all the energy that we had left and try to run the last quarter mile at a faster pace then i did that you weren't really up for it (laughs) and then i ran back i think and just finished it up with you. I think you apologize for not being able to have a burst of speed there at the end, which made me feel bad because I kind of assumed that most runners, when they see the end of a long run, will have a burst of speed that they can give to finish off the run strong and feel like they left it all out on the course.
6: Yeah, I had never done that before.
5: Yeah, you have. I have since learned that you <laughs> think that that is a ridiculous thing. <laughs> for anybody ever to do.
6: Luckily, we survived my humiliation on the trail and went on to do many more runs together. But our story made me think. A running date really is a great way for runners to get to know each other. It's super casual, you don't have to stare at each other across a dinner table, and it's an excuse for both of you to get a workout but it's also potentially fraught with disaster. If one person pushes the pace too much or isn't up for the distance, or if there's a wardrobe malfunction or GI issues, we figured there had to be lots of colorful stories out there. So we asked you, our listeners, and a few Runners World staffers for tales of looking for love on the run. (laughs)
3: It was back in February of 1979. We had gone out once and I was smitten, so I wanted to spend more time with her and ask her what she was doing the next day. And she said, well, I'm gonna go for a run. She was training for her very first race, which was the uh, Louisville half marathon around uh, derby time. And so I show up uh, to her apartment a Sunday afternoon. It's drizzling a bit. Uh, I've got my jeans on and Chuck Taylor Converse tennis shoes and ready for a five-minute jog. And she comes down from her apartment wearing uh, nice sweats, nice running shoes, and starts to stretch. And I have no idea what she's doing. I had not run since I'd been in the Army a couple of years earlier, even though I had told her that I really did love to run. Anyway, we uh, after her warm-up, we take off and... While I thought we would just go around the parking lot a couple of times, we leave the parking lot and start heading away and go a quarter mile, then half mile, then mile. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, for every step away from her apartment, we got to turn around and, uh, and head back. And we keep going one mile, two miles, uh, three miles, get to the base of Cherokee Park in Louisville. And I'm thinking to myself, please don't go into the park. And sure enough, we go into the park. We go up the hill, it's a pretty big hill, and uh, we're at the top of the uh, of Cherokee Park, and I'm, I say, hey, would you mind, I see a water fountain over there, would you mind if we just stopped and got a drink of water? And she said, sure. And so I'm sitting there drinking water out of the fountain, and she's beside me running in place, which, as we all know now, was totally unnecessary, and she just did that to be mean, I think. Anyway, so... We start to head back at that point to her apartment. the drizzle though has started to really affect my my blue jeans they're they're wet and they're starting to move up to my knees I'm it's heavier and heavier the shoes are terrible. We get back to her apartment on this uh, great second date and I think we'd run eight or nine miles and after about uh, thirty minutes, my legs start to really cramp up and I tell her I said, you know I probably need to head back to my apartment. I'm so I drove. About an hour and a half home, went to sleep, next morning got up and absolutely could not move. And so I remember crawling uh, out of bed, crawling hands and knees into the shower, not being able to stand up to take a shower. And fortunately, my sales calls that day were in um, far south Kentucky. So I had an extra hour and a half or so in the car I uh, I could just drive. And so I remember for, for each of my sales calls having to lift one leg up and then the other just to be able to get out of the car and walk. Since then, um, we have run a whole bunch of marathons together. She usually beats her Boston qualifying time by about 30 minutes. I have uh, not uh, gotten super close to my time, but maybe this is a year. Anyway, that was a fun second date, and um, she's a sweetheart in every aspect of her life except for running. And uh, when it comes to running, she's a killer.
7: A handful of dates into our relationship, um, my boyfriend Adam and I decided it was time for us to go on our first running date together. We were both runners, both marathoners, and I had a 16 mile long run on tap. So he decided to come with me. Um, he's faster than I am, so I was pretty self conscious about my pace. But he said, "You know, set the pace, and it'll be fine, and we'll take it nice and easy." So I was looking forward to it, and um, I planned a route that was an out and back, and before we started to head out, Adam gave me this um, kind of sports drink that he takes before all of his long runs, and he swears by it. But me being, you know, new in a relationship, I was eager to, you know, do everything right, so I had the drink, um, which you know, I learned that you should never try anything new before a long run. Um, so we were running and about five miles into the run, I started cramping really badly in my stomach and I knew that I was going to have to go to the bathroom immediately and there were no bathrooms in sight. So I told him that I wasn't feeling well and something imminent was about to happen. Um, so we started to turn around and um, I did that run walk walk embarrassing run walk where you have to go to the bathroom back to my apartment and it took forever. Um, When we got there, I unlocked the front door and ran up the stairs and left all the doors open um, and just ran into the bathroom and was just completely mortified about what had happened. So it was terrible in the moment, super embarrassing. I thought I had completely blown it, but you know, Three and a half years later, we're still together, and I think it really shows that runners are the only people that understand each other, and I will never have that drink ever again.
8: (laughs) Pretty early on when we were doing our first kind of long runs together, it was training you for your first half marathon, so I was kind of coaching, but I probably took it too far.
9: You did. Um, I remember it was a really humid day and I had a a ponytail and my ponytail or the hair got so knotted because it was so humid. I think I got dehydrated and my calves cramped and just my legs really hurt and I felt like I couldn't really move. I didn't have a good stride. So I stopped to walk and then you kept looking and pushing and pushing and then it just went from there and um, I just could cry, I started to cry.
8: Yeah, and we've had a lot of similar runs since that moment, Um, but it's gotten a little better. I think we've learned from each other the more we run together. Um, What do you think is one of the biggest changes that we've had?
9: I've learned that I should just get a coach and not always seek your advice, although it's good sometimes sometimes. Yes. Um, And I think you've also learned to read me a little bit better. And if I'm having a bad day, or if I'm just tired, and my legs are tired, and we are just taking a fun run, you know when to back
8: off. And I've learned if I do piss you off, um, just be ready to make pancakes when we get home from a morning run. That's always a good idea.
10: I had been separated for about a year, um, and Brian was divorced. Um, I had done some online dating that didn't really go very well um, at all and was in the process of canceling my account, um, but I saw his profile, and the whole thing was about running. Um, So I sent him a note, and I just said, this doesn't have to be... Like a thing, but I didn't think that anybody ever thought about running as much as I do. So I at least just wanted to say hi. Um, And I figured that that would be it and nothing would ever come of it. Um, We ended up texting back and forth for about a month. But we ended up becoming friends through texting and agreed to meet up. And we went out for sushi on uh, a Saturday. And I knew before dinner was over that I was completely smitten <laughs> with this guy. Um, and so then we met a couple days later. Uh, he took me on one of his favorite running routes through the neighborhood. And that was it. So, we, you know, I said we met that. Tuesday night, and we did a quick little after work, four-miler, and then the following weekend, you know, we went for an eight-miler, and it was just always sort of our favorite way to spend time together, um, something that we both loved. We kind of have really opposite personalities, uh, so it was a nice place where we could meet and be comfortable with each other, Um, and I also, I remember in those early days, he's kind of shy, and uh, it was a great way to get him talking because, you know, when you run and you just kind of lose all the other inhibitions or things that you'd hide behind during the rest of your life and so um and he's a ton faster than me so I would just ask him questions about himself or his life and he would just start talking and he was never that chatty um like on the phone or over a meal or anything but when we were running he would just talk for for so much and tell me so much about himself so it was a nice little tool <laughs>
4: Several years ago, I was in the midst of trying to join the 50-state marathon club, so I headed to Louisville, Kentucky for the marathon there. And around around mile seven, this really cute male runner who was about my age started chatting with me. I told him I was from New York and I was just visiting Louisville to run the race, to which he not so subtly asked me, oh, so what does your boyfriend think about that? I told him that I was, in fact, single, and we got into some flirty conversation, but then at mile 11, the course split with half marathoners going right and full marathoners going left. So I started veering left, of course, trying to cut the tangents as close as I could. But the guy said, wait, you're going the wrong way. The finish line's over here. And I said, no, I'm, I'm doing the full marathon. He looked totally crushed that he was only doing the half, even though that's obviously still an incredible achievement. And then, despite having given him my contact information, I never heard from him again.
6: So, sure, dating on the run can be a little uncomfortable, physically and psychically. But at least you know one very important thing about each other from the get-go. You love to run. And that can open the door to discovering all sorts of good stuff about each other. Like it did for my husband Seth and me. He might have taken off up a hill and left me feeling like a wuss. But I soon learned that he's actually very considerate while still challenging me to be better at whatever I'm doing. So that temporary embarrassment was totally worth it. We've now been married almost two years. And... I just have to add, we've gone on to do many runs and races as a couple, including a 10K we recently ran together, where I left him in the dust. Thanks to Steve Sessler, Hannah McGoldrick, Brian and Maura Dalek, Courtney Edwards and Laura Skwajinski for sharing your running stories with us.
0: And now for The Kick, with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox.
8: Okay, love is in the air, Kit Fox. It's a little bit of a Valentine's-themed kick this week. The romance is thick in the studio. Yes. um, Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) But um, to start things off, it's actually a story that happened last week, and uh, it's really... it's really great how this story turned out. Why don't you tell us what happened? We couldn't cover it last week in the kick. We already recorded it, but this one fits perfectly with um, you know Valentine's and you know running in general.
1: Yeah, this is this is kind of a beautiful story actually, um, but it it starts with tragedy. So on April twentieth, two thousand thirteen, the Boston Marathon. Um, Roseanne Stoia, she is a runner, but she was actually spectating on that day, and she was standing in front of the Forum Restaurant which was feet away from the site of the second bomb. Mm-hmm. So when that explosion occurred, her right leg was mangled. Um, and She was losing a lot of blood. And these, this group of strangers just came together and essentially saved her life. And so one of those strangers was um, a firefighter named Mike Materia. And so he rode in the ambulance with her to the hospital, didn't know her name. Um, she was taken up. He didn't know, um, I think at the time, whether or not she was going to live or not. They ended up reconnecting um, during her recovery process. Yeah, he meeting. kept visiting her in the hospital. Exactly, and you know, would would drive her places and, and check in on her, and you know, that developed into a relationship. They started dating, um, and they became really close. And so they announced um, last week that they got engaged. Yeah, congratulations um, to them. Um, you can read their whole kind
8: of meeting story. Um, a great feature in our May 2014 issue of Runner's Road. We'll have a link on our episode page to get you there. Um, but their story really didn't end with the engagement announcement last week. They, they did something to kind of cap that
1: off. Yeah, so... Uh, something completely different. Exactly. Um, altogether more inspiring because um, Roseanne's actually, her leg was amputated below the knee. Um, what they did was they did the Empire State Run-Up, so they uh, they ran up the Empire State Building. This is a race that happens every year, and so Mike wore his full firefighter outfit. Mm-hmm. Roseanne obviously had her running blade on, um, and what there can't be a better way to celebrate. Yeah, and the Empire State Building Run-Up, I did it
8: a few years ago. It's a tough race, um, 86 flights, uh, 1,576 wow. steps. Um, I think I did it in like 15 minutes and I was gassed. My legs completely hurt. You should try it sometime if you have a chance. They did it in just under an hour, which is just super impressive Like to do that in firefighter gear and to do that together. It's a, it's a great um, ending to their story. I think they're getting married later this year. Yeah, later in the fall.
1: So big congratulations
8: and happy Valentine's Day to both of them. All right. Now, and sticking with the love and Valentine's theme, here's where it gets a little awkward in the kick. Um, you know, we're generally a G, PG rated type of podcast. Um, if you listen with kids, you can fast forward maybe two, two and a half minutes. We have one more segment after this. Same with this. you, same with you, mom and dad. Feel free. yeah, kids, mom and dad. Maybe you Feel don't want to hear him talk forward. about this. But we had a really great article that went up on the site in time for the season on. How running affects your sex life, and there was some really interesting information that came out of that.
1: Yeah, so um, starting with the obvious connection, which is um, running breeds a healthy self-esteem, gonna make oh, you yeah. more confident, gonna make you feel more more confident in your body. You're gonna, you know, you know, feel. In shape, um, and there's actually a study d- done by Brooks that um, 41% of respondents said that they feel frisky after a run. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that they would take a shower first, hopefully. Um, but uh, 54% said that they were turned on by the energy boost. Yeah, um, I can I can see that you feel
8: good about yourself after a strong run. It's like it's like the runner's high carrying over. I think the people who responded to the Brooks survey they said like. Six miles was the sweet spot for feeling good. So that's typically like under an hour, um, but you're getting in like a, that 10K type of feel. But anything over an hour, you, you're, you're feeling drained. You a just want bit. a
1: cheeseburger and a pillow.
8: Yeah. I mean, there's other things to pay attention to as well. Um, you know, obviously running gives you endorphins. You get that runner's high, like we said. There's also other stuff that's going on in your brain, like serotonin is boost, dopamine is boost. So again that's kind of carrying over into the bedroom not not to mention kit um running helps your heart it helps blood flow we'll just leave it at that yeah. i mean our experts in the story said women have more sensitive touch men
3: yeah <laughs>
8: <laughs> again we'll again, just leave it at that yeah, but yeah, yeah. like you should check out the story the the other final thing kit that I really took from this is that, you know, there's a long-held debate, sex the night before a race whether uh, it's yes. good or bad. Um, you know, most of the experts say totally fine. It, it lowers your stress before maybe a big race. So, yeah, um it's not a bad idea. So that's the end of our latest segment. Um yeah. Kit and Brian talking sex. Yep. Uh no one will want to hear this ever again. Yeah. <laughs> we just <laughs> lost 50,000 subscribers. <laughs> All right, so just continuing on with the theme, uh, a lot of people, Kit, might want to go on running dates um, for Valentine's Day or the weekend before. And the one thing you want to keep in mind is you want to look good of course, on a running date, but when it's freezing cold like it is on the East Coast right now, um, you're, you're going to have a lot of snot just like... Little little
1: problem, just rivers. Little Two little rivers streaming <laughs> down the front of your face. Out
8: of your nose. It, like five seconds outside the door, um, just like a faucet with no stop. It's just going.
1: Yeah, so we just published a story for all you romantic runners out there um, about how to deal with snot in the run. Yeah, and why it actually happens. It's actually pretty interesting. And so the first thing... I'd like to get across. It's it's a problem that we all have. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a natural, natural thing. Yeah, everyone will deal with this. Yes, You're it's, not alone. So I found this fascinating, actually. Um, the reason why it happens is because your nose actually acts as your body's natural humidifier. Yeah, so yeah your nasal passages. Exactly. Yep. When it's really cold, it's really dry air coming through, you need to, you know, humidify that air. So your body just naturally overproduces a lot of A lot of mucus. A lot of that mucus, yeah. Like me, I'm not too self-conscious about it. I pull the old uh, shirt on the nose, you know, in the run with a lot of crusties. Mm -hmm. If you are self-conscious about it, Brian, I think there are a few things you can do.
8: Yeah, there were like eight tips that we had experts kind of help us with um, for dealing with snot on the run. Um, A few things make sense. Um, You could be like the teenager Brian who slept with a humidifier in his room (laughs) to keep, you know, everything uh, very moisturize and that'd be great for a morning run um other e- examples um you could try a neti pot because that's very cool
1: yes that's what you want to end your if you run take on
8: take that on a running
1: date you would look great yes so like have a that, kettle into the nose have that prepped or mm-hmm. plant it yeah mid run if you're like on a long run where you plant your water right plant the neti pot mid as well.
8: fantastic idea yeah. if you really hate all that snot in your nose of course We're going to break the record for the amount of times we can say snot um, in one part of a podcast. I think we're going to go for that. Um, The other thing that just kind of makes sense if you don't want to use a neti pot, you could fit um, a nasal spray into your pocket. That kind of makes sense to me, a little bit more sense than the neti pot.
1: And my favorite tip, mostly because I'm all about how good I look on the run, mm-hmm. more so than very functionality, mm-hmm. yeah, is um, you can just wear a gaiter or a buff over your face, and that'll yeah. help you know keep things moisturized. At the very least, hide it. But my favorite part is on a freezing cold run, when you wear that thing, you come back looking like a badass because all that ice has formed on the front of your mouth, and it looks mm-hmm. like you just you know did an Arctic expedition. Yeah,
8: that does look great. Um, but to be fair, I'm sure a lot of people are just listening to this. Mm-hmm either disgusted or saying you know you could just learn how to do uh, a proper snot rocket Um, absolutely um, and if you don't know how to do that kind of like me i'm pretty amateur at doing a good one we will put the video that we have um, on the episode page on runnersworld.com
1: audio and as i I like to say snot rockets they're not rocket science no they, they shouldn't be and we have a quick explainer for you we do check that out um so this was just i think an illuminating kick i think um people are gonna want to hear more of our dating advice obviously and our uh you know <laughs> bodily function advice as well brian and kit talk sex and boogers <laughs> sex and boogers um yeah that might come down the road yeah we're gonna have to hold we'll off on that
8: try that any year we'll please come don't back.
1: unsubscribe <laughs> all right
8: thanks kit that was fun
1: thanks brian That's it for this
0: week's show. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to all of you who have sent us comments and ratings on the show. And please keep them coming. They really help us make the show better. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Claire Trageser. Be sure to join us next week for an update on my Moonshot Marathon or my attempt to finally qualify for Boston using the same methods that Nike is currently putting to the test as three of their athletes attempt to break the two hour marathon. In next week's show, I meet up with two of my Nike coaches and they give me a brutally honest assessment of where I am and of the many things that I will need to do going forward.
10: All right, you have one thing, you have a locked up thoracic spine and other than that, you look really good. You see it when I'm doing Uh, a little bit of this too much side to side rotation at his waist that makes this my high school coach called it the drummer boy arms um rather than a front to back swing
0: i hope you'll stay with me on this journey and i will see you next week